Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, and we are in a new chapter. And here you thought we would be, you know, in chapter 2 for months, right? But here we are, already in chapter 3. And uh, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 this morning. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. And let me read our text, and then I'll pray and we'll talk about it. Romans chapter 3, verse 1, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I am speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Father, as we continue um, looking at Paul's letter to the churches in Rome, I pray that your spirit would illuminate our minds regarding the words in this text, that we would understand what Paul meant by what he wrote here. And, and Lord, also, Lord, how it applies to our lives today, that we would remember this is not just some ancient story, Lord, but this was meant to bring us life and to help us to be the people that you want us to be. And so grant us grace today. I pray your spirit would work actively amongst us, Lord, as we look at the oracles of God, your very words, and that we would respond to them as they are, not just the words of a man, but your words given to us for our life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure you all have heard of the name C.S. Lewis, who is best known for his classic book, Mere Christianity, uh, which I'm sure uh, many of you have read. It's a brilliant defense of the Christian faith. His lesser-known anthology, entitled God in the Dock, is a collection of apologetic essays and speeches that were published after his death, and they basically express Lewis's contention that human beings, rather than seeing themselves being judged by God, prefer to put God on trial and act as his judge. They put God in the dock. They put him in the box, if you will. Well, there's no lack of examples in our society, both actual and fictional, that... that, um, that prove really that Lewis's analogy is spot on. In 1970, lightning struck Betty Penrose's house and she filed a lawsuit against God. 
for messing up her house. And she sought $100,000 in damages. And so when God failed to show up in court, she won the case by default. Now, I'm not sure how she collected the money, but apparently the judge, uh, you know, ruled in her favor. In 2008, Nebraska State Senator Ernie Chambers filed a, a suit against God for causing natural disasters and failing to stop terrorist threats. Now, he was suing God to make a point about the value of frivolous lawsuits in response to bills that were being filed by other state senators at the time to try to restrict the filing of frivolous lawsuits. And, and Chambers' point was simply this, anybody should be able to sue anyone, even God. In the end, Chambers' case was dismissed because God had no address at which he could be properly served notice. That's exactly what the court read, apparently. Um, complaints against God are not limited to U.S. courts. In 2007, a Romanian man serving time for murder sued God for not protecting him from the devil's influence. That's kind of convenient. He actually filed the lawsuit against the Romanian Orthodox Church, who in his mind were God's representatives in Romania, and he argued that his baptism was a binding contract between him and God, and God had not kept his side of the bargain. He accepted prayers without offering anything in exchange, and so he cited five crimes allegedly committed by God, including fraud, breach of trust, and abuse of a position of authority. Well, as you can imagine, the suit was thrown out because God was not viewed as an individual or company in the eyes of the Romanian law, and therefore he was not subject to their jurisdiction. I think the example that most closely relates to our text this morning um, is a made-for-television play that was produced back in 2008 titled God on Trial. You may be familiar with this story, but the play is set in, Nazi, in a Nazi concentration camp in, in Auschwitz, Germany uh, during World War II, and a group of Jewish prisoners awaiting their uh, inevitable death in the gas chambers put God on trial for abandoning the Jewish people. And the question posed is if God had broken his holy covenant with the Jews by allowing the Nazis to commit genocide. And their conclusion is that God was guilty for their suffering. He was the one to blame for their suffering. Now, I can't imagine uh, any of you ever filing a lawsuit against God. That would be good, by the way, if you didn't. But I think if we're honest, we are all guilty at times of, of accusing God or blaming God. God for not being loving or not being fair. We question his actions, his decisions that affect our lives. And sometimes we even think or assume that our sin is his fault, that he's to blame. And so whenever we entertain these type of critical, judgmental thoughts against God, we are questioning, we are challenging his character. 
And Paul knew that after hearing what he had just wrote about the Jews in relationship to the law and to circumcision at the end of chapter 2, that they would naturally accuse him of blaspheming the very character of God. And so here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, Paul took on the role of God's defense attorney. Not that God needs anyone to defend him. But what he's doing here is he's confirming that despite their special privileges and advantages as God's chosen people, God is completely right and just in punishing the Jews alongside the Gentiles. And if you remember from last week, he had just got done it, exposing the Jews' false sense of spiritual security in order to help them to see that even though they possessed the law, even though they were circumcised, that neither of these things exempted them from facing the judgment of God. See, Paul knew the Jews wrongly assumed that, that based on all that they knew and all that they did, that their salvation was assured they would never go to hell. And so out of his deep love and concern for his fellow Jews, Paul explained that Judaism, despite all of its religious affiliations and religious activities, wasn't enough to save them from God's wrath. And in chapter 2, verses 17 through 29, he essentially said that when it comes to being in a right relationship with God, God could care less if you were born a Jew or if you were circumcised and grew up studying the law, or even were in a position of, of teaching it to others. In other words, a person's heritage, uh, their religious beliefs, their religious ceremonies are worthless in God's eyes. Salvation results from the work of God's Spirit in the heart, not merely associating with, with a particular religious group or participating in a bunch of religious activities. And again, this is a great reminder for us today that, you know what, it doesn't matter to God if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter to God if you're a Catholic or Protestant. It doesn't matter to God if you're a Baptist or a Methodist, or if you've been circumcised or not, or if you've joined a church or not, or you've been baptized or not, or you've been confirmed or not. All he cares about is if you've been born again. Jesus said, in order to inherit the kingdom of God, you must be born again. In other words, to go to heaven, the Spirit of God needs to have regenerated your heart. Now, to Jewish ears, back then, all this was an outrageous, blasphemous attack on the character of God and the covenants of God. And Paul anticipated that, that these serious accusations that he made against the Jews were sure to bring strong objections from the Jews. And as we've already seen at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul employed in his writing style here in this letter what's referred to as a diatribe style. This question and answer back and forth writing like he was having an, an imaginary debate with an invisible opponent by asking and answering the natural questions and the obvious objections that his words would raise in his readers' minds. It's almost as if he's impersonating a heckler in the crowd. Yes, I see that hand. Yes, let me answer that question. He, he knows it's, it's going to come. So he wants to get out ahead of it. 
and uh, nip it in the bud, if you will. And so Paul had been in plenty of synagogues during the course of his ministry, evangelizing Jews. He had gotten used to their questions, their objections. He was very familiar with their counter-arguments as a result of the many heated debates that he had been involved in uh, with his fellow kinsmen. Furthermore, he was formerly uh, an unconverted Pharisee. So he was likely just expressing the attitudes and objections that he himself had when he was an unbelieving Jew. He knew the arguments. He had made them, given them themselves. He's, he's the one that gave the objections, asked the questions. And so here in chapter 3, Paul was doing more than just playing the devil's advocate. In fact, he was actually serving as God's advocate. And so what we're going to see this morning is how Paul countered two objections, two objections from the Jews in order to defend God's character and to clear God's name. Now, there's actually three objections, but I've really just consolidated them into two. Um, there's an objection in verses, verse 1. Um, there's an ob objection in verse 3. And then there, it goes on uh, to an objection in verse 5. But the two things that stuck out at me in this text was that one phrase, may it never be, verse 4. Verse 6, may it never be. He said that two times. And we're going to talk about what that phrase actually meant. But because he responded two times, I just simply said, hey, let's just make this two objections um, rather than three. Um, just to match up with the fact of how many times he actually rebuked uh, the, the false thinking that was a part of these objections. So what are these objections? Well, number one, the first objection or accusation uh, is that God is not faithful. And we see that in verses one through four. And the second objection is that God is not fair. If, this is, if everything you say is true, Paul, then that means God's not faithful. And it also means that God's not fair. And Paul says, well, let me respond to those objections. And so first of all, he responds to the objection that God is not faithful. And, and where he's coming from here, in verses 1 through 4, is the fact that God chose Israel out of all the nations of the world and made a covenant with the Jews and ordained circumcision as the sign, as the seal of of that covenant and formalize their covenant relationship by giving them the law at Mount Sinai. And yet Paul had just finished in chapter 2, verses 17 to 29, radically redefining these things by saying stuff like uncircumcised people who keep the law are, 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 are more pleasing to God than or circumcised people who don't keep the law. In other words, uncircumcised Gentiles are more pleasing to God than circumcised Jews. In fact, those without the law will judge the Jews who don't keep the law. And what's worse, all Jews are not really truly Jews in God's eyes. What? And so if what Paul said is true, that, that all the privileges, all the advantages of being a Jew serve to 
increase their condemnation, then they don't seem like advantages, but liabilities. And so he answers the question that he knows is coming, then what advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? And so here comes the first objection from this imaginary heckler in the crowd, if you will. He's essentially saying, listen, if having the law, knowing the law, and teaching the law, and being circumcised mean absolutely nothing to God, then what's the benefit of being a Jew? And are we not any more blessed than the uncircumcised Gentile? And I think in a similar way today, we might ask something like, well, what is the benefit of joining a church or being baptized or studying and teaching the Bible or living a, a moral life, if none of these things have anything to do with making us right with God in the end. Now, based on what Paul has been saying and kind of the, the straightforward stance he's been taking or approach he's been taking with the Jews, you might expect him to simply respond to this first objection by saying, None. What advantage has you? Or what is the benefit of the circumcision? You might think, well, I just got done telling you, none. Being a Jew is of no advantage to anyone. Like John the Baptist said, that, that God could raise up descendants of Abraham from these rocks, right? He doesn't need you to be a Jew. He doesn't need descendants. He can, he can make anybody a descendant of Abraham. But that's not what he said. Look what he said in verse 2. He said, well, as a matter of fact, great in every respect. There's great advantage. There's great benefit. He wanted the Jews to know that, that their disobedience had not altered their blessed position as God's chosen people. That they had many special advantages and privileges. And most importantly, they had been entrusted with the oracles of God. Notice he says, great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God, the logia, the very words of God. That's a great expression, by the way, the oracles of God, the, the, the very words of God, which is, I think, generally a reference to the entirety of God's word. We, we could call this the oracles of God. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need for, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. 1 Peter 4, 11, whoever speaks or preach, whoever preaches is to do so as one who is speaking the oracles of God, the very utterances of God. But in this context, I think that Paul was specifically referring to all the promises and commands that God gave to the Jews in the Old Testament through Moses and through the prophets. In Acts chapter 7, verse 38, this is what it says. This is the one who was in the congregation. This is about Moses. This is what it says about Moses. He's the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness together with the angel who was speaking to him on Mount Sinai and who was with our fathers and he received living oracles to pass on to you. So Moses received these oracles from the Lord and he was to pass them on and in Deuteronomy chapter 6 he did that. Deuteronomy is the second law. He's repeating the law for this new generation 
of people that are going into the promised land. Their moms and dads had, and grandmas and grandpas had died off in the wilderness. And so uh, Moses has one last opportunity to pass on the law to them. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess it, so that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. The Jews prided themselves in this very thing, that they had been given, they had been entrusted with the oracles of God. And if you ever have the privilege of visiting Israel and you go to Jerusalem and you go to the, to the Wailing Wall, you see the, the Orthodox Jews, they're treasuring their scriptures, they have usually in, in the form of big scrolls, and, and, and it's like they, they, they feel so proud of those things as they carry them around and as they open them up and as they study them. And, 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 uh, and so it's true that no other nation on the planet was given the benefit of having God's word or given the sacred duty of being the custodians of God's special revelation. I mean, they had the privilege and responsibility of stewarding and sharing God's truth with the rest of the nations of the world. And primarily, God had entrusted the Jews with his plan of salvation by grace through faith alone in the promised Messiah, Jesus. Paul reminded Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, he said that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You said, hey, Timothy, you, you grew up with the Old Testament. And, and, and the Old Testament gives you wisdom and leads you to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. I think we need to also recognize as Christians that we have been greatly blessed as well to have the very words of God, which give us an, an incalculable advantage over those who don't have the word of God. Why? Because we know what God is like. We know what we are like. We know what he requires for salvation. And I think we need to be very careful not to take this precious gift for granted that God has given us. I mean, many of us, we've never known life without a Bible. We've always had one. And it's hard for us to imagine not having a copy of God's Word, but there's, there's thousands, maybe even millions of people still on the planet that don't have a copy of the Bible. They've never been exposed to the word of God like we have. And so we need to remember that to whom much is given, much is required. And so we have the privilege of sharing the truth of God's word with others who have yet to hear it through evangelism, through witnessing, through telling other people who may have a Bible at their house, but they never read it. They have no clue what's in it. 
here in the South, right, we can be sharing the truth of God's word as we witness to our neighbors and our coworkers and our classmates. And, 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 and that's why we do missions, right? That's why we go to Honduras and we go to different parts of the world and why we support missionaries, right? We want the word of God to be known. That's why one of the best investments that any of us could make financially is to support Bible translation ministry. Ministries that are translating the Bible and the language of people all around the world that have yet to have a copy of the Bible in their own language. I mean, we just take that for granted. And so at first, it looks like Paul was going to give a list, right? He says, what's the advantage? What's the benefit? Man, great in every respect. Well, first of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And, and, and so you think he's going to give this list of advantages and blessings of being a Jew, but instead he just summed them all up in one supreme blessing advantage, and that is this right here. You have the word of God. He actually would go on to finish that list later in chapter 9 where he elaborated on the fact that God is not broken nor will he ever break his covenant with Israel. Look at chapter 9 quickly, verse 4. It's as if he picks up where he left off in chapter 3, verse 2. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then he says in chapter 9, verse 4, who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who was over all, God bless forever, amen. I mean, you were the recipients of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. The word of God incarnate. But then notice the next verse. This is Romans 9, 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, Paul launches into this discussion in chapters 9, 10, and 11. Well, it appears that the word of God has failed. In the sense that in light of all the promises and, and prophecies of the coming Messiah... The Jews failed to see the fulfillment of them in Jesus, whom they despised and they rejected, and the majority of Jews responded in unbelief. And so Paul asked the natural question in the next verse, back in Romans chapter 3, what then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? In other words, does the failure of the Jews to believe God's promises and obey his commands cancel out the covenant that he made with them? Are the, are the promises that God made to Israel still valid? Will he still be faithful to, to his promises even though the nation rejected Jesus as their Messiah? Is the Abrahamic covenant still in force? Will the unfaithfulness of the Jews nullify the faithfulness of God? Has, God word, has God's word, the, the oracles of God, if you will, have they failed? Or will they be, or they, they will, will they be failed, failed to be fulfilled? And again, based on what Paul said in chapter 2, verses 17 and 29, I think the Jews could have very naturally concluded that God has gone back on his word to them. If it doesn't matter if they're a descendant of Abraham, 
It doesn't matter if they've been circumcised. Well, apparently God's going back on his word. Because according to Paul, Abraham's descendants were supposedly in the same boat as the Gentiles, and apparently God would pour out his wrath on the Jews along with the Gentiles. And so it seems like the Abrahamic covenant is, went right out the window. It's useless. Null and void. What the Jews seem to forget is that God's promises to Israel included both blessings and cursings. And if you know the story, Moses had, or God had told Moses that when the, the nation of Israel entered the promised land, the very first thing they were to do was to, to assemble on two opposite mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and half of them were supposed to go over here to Mount Gerizim and they were to proclaim all the promises of blessing. And, and, and on the other, the other group on Mount Ebal were to proclaim all the promises of cursing. And it was almost like an antiphonal choir back and forth to remind them of God's promises included both blessing and cursing. And so really it's a tale of two mountains there. And so when God had to punish Israel by allowing enemy nations to conquer them and take them into exile, God was being faithful to keep his promises. He wasn't saying, well, sorry, covenant's over. I'm done with you guys. No, he was saying, no, this is part of the covenant. I promised to bless you if you obeyed me, and I promised to curse you if you disobeyed me. It was a package deal. Furthermore, just because God has not guaranteed to fulfill his promises to every physical descendant of Abraham, that doesn't mean he won't fulfill them to the nation as a whole. I think the, great, the, the, the simplest, greatest argument about whether or not there's a future for Israel is, is simply this. If all the promises of cursing were literally fulfilled, then all the promises of blessing must be literally fulfilled as well. That would be inconsistent to say, well, look, all God's promises of cursing were literally fulfilled, but the rest are just spiritually fulfilled in the church. No, God is going to literally fulfill his promises of blessing as well someday to the nation of Israel in the land of Israel. But the teaching of not just the New Testament, but the Old Testament has always been the same, that for an, in order for an individual descendant of Abraham, a Jew, to inherit the national promises of blessing that God made to the descendants of Abraham and be rescued from God's wrath, they had to seek the Lord in repentance and faith. They, they didn't just get it because they were a Jew. These were spiritual blessings. And that's why Isaiah said, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. So in order for the Jews to experience God's richest blessing, they must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which the Bible says during the end times, 
many of them will. That when Christ returns, they will, they'll get it. The light bulb will come on and go, wow, this is the one that we have pierced. We killed our Messiah. They'll get it. And they'll repent of their unbelief and they'll place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation and they'll be saved. Notice how Paul responds to this objection. What then if some did not believe their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? And here it is. May it never be! Exclamation point. May genoite in the Greek which translated means absolutely not. Perish the thought. God forbid, not on your life, not in a million years. Are you crazy? Those are some ways you could think about what that means. May it never be. And this exclamation was frequently used by Paul in this letter. He uses it again in verse 6, may it never be. Verse 31, do we then nullify the law through faith, may it never be. Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sins that the grace may increase? May it never be. Chapter 6, verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? May it never be. Chapter 7, verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. Verse 13, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me, may it never be. Chapter 11, verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected his people as he, may it never be. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. Paul is saying, are you out of your mind? What are you thinking? Absolutely not. No way, Jose. And so Paul was adamant here that God would remain true to his word. Notice he says, it may never be, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. In other words, that God will do what he said he will do when it comes to his promises to Abraham. If for no other reason than the fact that God cannot lie. Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long years ago. And then Hebrews 6.18 says it best. It is impossible for God to lie. Paul encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. One of the main attributes of God is his faithfulness. That is the very essence of who God is. He's a faithful God. He can't deny himself. And when we talk about God being faithful, it simply means that he keeps his promises. That's all we're saying. That he's a man of his word. 
He's a God of his word. He does what he says he's going to do. He never goes back on his promises. And so Paul says, listen, if, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. If there's ever a question whether what God has said is right or what someone else says is right, well, that's an easy conclusion, right? That the person is always wrong. And God's word is always right. Why? Because all men are liars, according to Psalm 116, verse 11. And this should encourage us when, when we're witnessing to someone who may not believe that the Bible is the word of God. So, it doesn't mean it's not, just because you say it's not. And so as you're quoting the scriptures and saying, like Billy Graham would famously say, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, that was my favorite thing about listening to Billy Graham preach. He always said, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. And so hopefully we can learn from his example as we're witnessing. Don't say, well, I think and, you know, or I read. No, the Bible says. The Bible is my authority. I'm not just sharing with you another man's opinion. I'm sharing with you what God has said in his word. The God who cannot lie. And so you say the Bible says this or the Bible says that. And they tell you, well, you know, I don't think that the Bible uh, was, was, you know, it was written by God. I think it was written by men. And therefore, you know, you're just, it's just another man's opinion. You're like, oh no, what do I do? Oh, I guess I gotta, I can't use the Bible anymore. Okay, so let's just talk. No, keep quoting the Bible. Because the Bible is the power of God unto salvation. It's not your words. It's the truth, whether they accept it or reject it. It doesn't matter. And according to Paul, they're a liar. And somebody lied to them. And somebody lied to that person who lied to them. And they're lying to other people. Why? Because we're all lying to one another. And that's why we need this, because it is the only trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. Because it's God's word and God does not lie. We know this is the truth. Notice he, he quotes from the Old Testament here. He says, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Literally, and prevail when you judge. This was a quote from Psalm 51, verse 4. And if you remember the context there, that was Israel's greatest king, David, confessing his sin after he committed adultery with Bathsheba and he murdered her husband Uriah. And he was confronted by the prophet Nathan and said, you're the man. And he he immediately fell on his face before the Lord and began to pour out his heart before the Lord and confessing his sin. And he gets to chapter four, or, or excuse me, verse four in Psalm 51. And, and, and he says essentially this, that you are justified in your words and prevail when you judge. In other words, you have every right to judge me, God. 
David admitted that he deserved to be judged by God for his sin, and he willingly accepted any punishment that he had coming to him. In other words, what Paul was saying, hey Jews, don't forget your own forefather, the greatest king who ever lived in the history of Israel, he admitted that he deserved to be judged, that God was right to judge him for his sin. Why, why can't you be like him and just admit it? Well, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know that this is just scratching the surface here um, regarding God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel because Paul will go on in chapters 9, 10, and 11 to provide a much fuller defense of God's faithfulness to Israel, even in spite of their unbelief. In other words, that there is a future for Israel. Stay tuned for chapters 9, 10, and 11. But the point here, simply this, is that God is faithful. God is faithful. Now, how about the second objection? The sec second objection that God is not fair. That God is not fair in verses 5 through 8. And so here's another objection that Paul anticipated and that is this, if my sin provides a greater opportunity for God to display his righteousness, then it seems unfair that he would punish me for my sin. Notice verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. In other words, this is a silly, foolish human argument. But we all know if you've ever been to a jeweler looking to purchase a diamond, I've only had that experience once in my life, to purchase a diamond for my bride-to-be, but I'll never forget when that jeweler laid out the choices, the options for me, he took those diamonds and he laid them out not just on the countertop, he put them on a black velvet pad. Why? So they would pop, right? So they would look even more brilliant. And so that's, I think, at the root of this question, this objection. Hey, wait a minute. If, if my sin is that black velvet backdrop and it really makes God's grace and mercy and his goodness and his faithfulness pop, well, then I, why am I being judged? Well, notice again, the second time here. Make anointa. May it never be. There is no possible way that God could ever be accused of being unrighteous or unjust, that it's not fair. If that were the case, then he would not be worthy to judge the world which is the theme of Paul's letters up to this point, right? Notice he says, may it never be, for otherwise how will God judge the world? And we know this whole, this whole section is about the righteous judgment of God. Chapter 2, verse 5. So what, what Paul's saying here is, listen, if God allowed wrongdoing to go unpunished, he would not qualify as a fair, impartial 
judge. And Paul's already said in chapter 3, verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. God can't overlook sin. He can't excuse our sin, even if it does provide him an occasion to show off his grace and his mercy and somehow contributes to his eternal purposes. Notice how Paul persists in this illogical line of reasoning, verse 7, because he knows that the Jewish objectors aren't going to just roll over and be like, oh, okay, Paul. No, he says, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? Again, if my sin brings God glory, if my lying proves that he's telling the truth, if me facing his wrath brings him praise, then how can he condemn me as a sinner? That doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem just. If my sin benefits God, how can he turn around and use it against me, judge me for it? Listen, I'm, I'm doing a favor to God by sinning. You see how illogical this form of reasoning is? If being bad makes God look good, then we should be as bad as we can so God can look as good as possible. If that's not crazy enough, look what he asked this question in verse 8, and why not say then, as we are slanderously reported as some claim that we say, why not say, let us do evil that good may come? Why wouldn't it be Logical then to say, let us, let's just do more bad stuff so that more good will come from it. The ends justify the means. And notice Paul mentioned that some were accusing him of encouraging people to sin. Why, well, why would they accuse him that? Well, because he was preaching the gospel of salvation by grace through faith alone, apart from works. We read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works. In other words, there's nothing that you can do. Your salvation has nothing to do with what you do or don't do. And so people wrongly assumed that that gave people a license to sin. Whether it was the legalists, the Judaizers, like, whoa, whoa, time out, Paul. If you tell people that, they're just going to keep living in their sin. They need to get circumcised. They need to keep all these uh, dietary laws. And Paul's like, no, they don't. And then you had the antinomians that were like, sweet. I like this gospel. Doesn't have anything to do with what I do or don't do. I can have my cake and eat it too. I got my get out of hell free card. And I can just keep living and and confessing my sin and, and saying it's all under the blood. Which, by the way, both of those, legalism and antinomianism, are present in the church today, aren't they? Which Paul confronted and corrected, not just here, but a few chapters later in chapter 5. Notice this, 
Romans chapter 5, verse 20, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. In other words, where there was more sin, there was more grace. So that as sin reigned to death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to the eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul's he's going out on a limb here and, and making a radical statement that the more you sin, the more grace you experience. And he knows, I, I got to put a governor on that statement because there's going to be some that will take advantage of that and take that the wrong way. And so chapter 6, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? In other words, if that's true, Paul, then I'm just going to keep on sinning so I get more grace. He says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, Jesus came to die on the cross, not just so you could keep on living in sin, but that you would no longer live for yourself, but for him who died and rose again. So Paul was balancing out what he was teaching here. And so, again, this was a, this, this was a, was a ridiculous line of reasoning. It would be, as, it'd be like suggesting that, hey, we need to pray this week that there'll be more accidents, more disasters in our community so that the firemen and the paramedics and the doctors and the nurses would have a greater opportunity to save people, put on display their skills, all their training. You're like, what? You're stupid. What are you talking about? And so these slanderous accusations that were being made against Paul were so absurd, they were so ludicrous, they were so illogical, so irrational, so foolish, there was no point in him even responding to them. He simply entrusted himself to God, who judges righteously, and he handed his slanderers over to God, knowing they deserved his judgment. Notice what he says here. Their condemnation is just. They're self-condemning. These kinds of slanderous statements are self-condemning. If anyone objects to being judged by God as sinners, it proves that they deserve to be judged. Look at Romans chapter 9, verse 14. This was in the context of Paul talking, uh, talking about Jacob and Esau, these twins that were in the womb of Isaac's wife, Rebecca. And he sovereignly chose who? Jacob over Esau. He said, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Before they had done anything to earn God's favor, God said, I'm picking that guy to work through in my plans for the nation of Israel. And so Paul anticipates immediately someone's going to say, well, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. That doesn't seem... What? Fair, Paul. It may not seem fair, but it is fair because God cannot be un.
just. It's impossible for him to lie, and it's impossible for him to be unfair. In fact, Abraham, if you remember uh, when the angels came to Abraham to announce to he and Sarah that they were going to have a child, and and uh, before they left, they said, hey, should I tell him what I'm going to do with Sodom and Gomorrah? And so he said, yeah, go ahead, let's tell him. And so he said, hey, I'm, we're going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. God's going to rain down fire from, from heaven and wipe this, 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 uh, these cities out who have been uh, completely uh, sinful. And, of course, Abraham's thinking about, well, my nephew Lot lives down there. And so... Abraham immediately and confidently appealed to God's justice in regards to judging Sodom and Gomorrah. And said, hey, oh, by the way, God, if, if there was 50 righteous people there, would you still judge it? And what did God say? No, I wouldn't judge it if there was 50 righteous people. Uh, how about 40? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't judge it. How about 30? How about 20? He, gets down, gets him, he, he talks God down to 10. Say, God, what if there's just 10 righteous people? He's thinking that's Lot and his wife, his daughters, and maybe anyone else who's associated. Surely that'll cover my family who's there. And he said, sure, if, I, if, you, if there's 10 righteous people there, I won't, I won't destroy it. What gave Abraham the boldness to appeal to God? Well, in Genesis 18, 25, it says this. This is what Abraham said. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. Abraham knew that God was just and could be trusted to be fair in every situation. That God always does what is right. Which, by the way, is very hard for us to grasp as human beings living in a society where we're corrupted by injustice. We've grown accustomed to seeing all sorts of injustice, innocent people being convicted and guilty people going unpunished and all sorts of discrimination and prejudices and influencing people's opinions and decisions, not to mention all the silly, frivolous lawsuits that we talked about early on uh, at the beginning of the sermon, the late, late ladies, you know, people suing fast food restaurants for when they spill coffee on themselves and they get millions of dollars because the coffee was too hot or, uh, you know, or, you know, fast food chains are making me fat, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sue you guys for not putting enough information on the labels that I ate too much and it's your fault and seriously I mean silly stuff like that which which all of which make a mockery of justice and tend to make us cynical towards our system of justice but we what we need to understand that that none of the injustices that we have ever witnessed even begin to compare with the injustice that Jesus faced in his arrest and trial and crucifixion. The death of Christ was the greatest injustice in the history of the world. But it was through the unjust death of Jesus Christ that God was actually carrying out his justice. Which is what? 
that his justice demands that every sinner must die. It would be unjust for God not to punish us for our sin. So how then can God pardon us of our sin so we can spend eternity with him in heaven and still him still be just? How does that work? Well, he justifies us through the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, which we're going to see here in just a few more verses. In chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, You can just read verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, a satisfaction. Christ's death satisfied God's justice. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be, here it is, just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross, the penalty of sin was paid for, and therefore God's justice was satisfied. Let me just share with you in closing how John Piper explained this in his book, Desiring God. He said, the good news is that God himself has decreed a way to satisfy the demands of his justice without condemning the whole human race. Hell is one way to settle accounts with sinners and uphold his justice. He could have just sent all of us to hell and be done with it. But there is another way. The wisdom of God has ordained a way for the love of God to deliver us from the wrath of God without compromising the justice of God. And what is this wisdom? The death of the Son of God for sinners. The death of Christ is the wisdom of God by which the love of God saves sinners from the wrath of God and all the while upholds and demonstrates the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness Thank you for your fairness, that these two things should never be doubted in our minds or questioned or objected to. Lord, you are always faithful. You are always fair. No matter how we may think or feel. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just solidify these, these attributes of yours in, the, in our minds and our hearts today that we would cling to your faithfulness, we would cling to your justice, and that we would find great joy in them, and, and not just for our own lives, Lord, but sharing these truths about you with other people, and how in Christ, your mercy and justice came together at the cross, so that our sin could be paid for, and your justice satisfied, and we get forgiven and eternal life in heaven. What an amazing revelation. What amazing plan 
of salvation that could only have been devised by a God with supreme wisdom, infinite wisdom like yours. And so we pray that you would help us to leave rejoicing today for your faithfulness and your justice in our lives. And in this world we pray, amen.